you really have to get into the the nuts and bolts of of what's on your balance sheet. I don't care how big you are. What people do you have? What where do you need to augment talent? Knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know, I think, is really important. You're listening to Stories from the Top, an inside guide to better business development. We are here with Lauren Rinaldi, the president, CFO, and founding partner of First Resource Bank. Lauren, can you just describe the business for people who may not be familiar with you guys? Sure. First Resource Bank is a commercial-oriented bank. We service both businesses and consumers with our headquarters in Chester County, right in Exton. And we have three locations in uh, Exton, Wayne, and Westchester. Very cool. So what did you originally go to school for? I went to school for accounting because I knew I would get a job. Um, Not the most compelling reason to study a certain thing, but I really found that it gave me a great foundation for pretty much anything I wanted to do in the business world. Okay, and what got you into banking coming from the accounting background? Mm -hmm. So when I graduated from college, I ended up at Ernst & Young as an auditor, and I was auditing banks. And at 22, 23 years old, they had me doing some really complicated projects at a a very large bank in the Philadelphia area that's no no longer around. But um, I got great exposure to the entire, um, all facets of banking, really, from from soup to nuts. So I got to see everything there. I got to work with some really, really smart people. And the reason why I picked banking when I got to Ernst & Young, you could pick really any industry you wanted to work with, was um, they told me that banking was the hardest and that if you could beat that, you could kind of do anything. So I I always like a challenge. So I I went that way just because it's the most, one of the most regulated industries out there. So if you can kind of kick that one, everything else seems a little bit easier. But I stuck with banking, so I don't know if I'm just a sucker for punishment or what. Yeah, so there's a big difference between interest in banking and deciding to start your own bank. What what was the genesis of creating a bank? What made you want to start your own versus mm-hmm. work at another one? Well, back in my Ernst & Young days, the EY now, my employee number was like 16 digits long. And it was it was, you know, you you were important in your own right, but in the whole big picture it was kind of hard to see where you fit into the uh, the whole the giant machine that was Ernst & Young. So um, I went to a community bank um, after I left there and really saw the impact of small business. And while I was at this other community bank, I also learned a lot of things that um, I would do differently if I had my own bank. So Glenn Marshall, who's my co-founder, he's our CEO here. The two of us worked together at this other community bank. And we kind of started an informal list of one day when we have our own bank, we're not going to do X, Y, Z. And when the list got to volume two and volume three, um, we just, we took a plunge and it was a huge risk. And uh, I never forget one night we went out to dinner and it was me, uh, myself and my husband and Glenn and his wife, who's also named Lauren, the poor guy surrounded by Lauren's all the time. But the four of us went out to dinner and we said, like, are we really going to do this? And they both said, we fully support you. I, I don't know if they were smart or crazy or stupid, but um, we quit our jobs and we're going to go do this. We're going to do it better. We're going to build a better mousetrap. We're going to do all the things that we said we would do. And we have this list of fundamental operating philosophies from day one. We're never going to do this. We're never going to do that. We're always going to do this. We've held true to them 18 years later. We opened in 2005, and I can't point to a single thing that we've done since then that violates those original sets of rules. So we've talked to a lot of people who start up their own business. What are the first steps that a bank has to do to get started? 
It's crazy. We we often joke. It's it's like a secret club that like you you only you only know the secret handshake if you've done this because it is one of the most stressful yet rewarding experiences by far for my life. Did I mention that I was 30 years old when we started to do this? I mean, crazy. I had a one-year-old. I don't know what the heck I was thinking, but Glenn had a lot of faith in me and um, I just it's very rare in life you get opportunities like that. So if you don't embrace those at the time, you know, they might never happen again. I firmly believe if I hadn't taken that jump then, I don't know what I'd be doing now, but it would be nowhere near as exciting and as fun and as rewarding as what I'm doing now. But um, so there's a couple of things you need to do is, is one, you need to apply for a banking charter with the Department of Banking, Pennsylvania. You have to apply for FDIC insurance and you have to raise capital and you have to do all three of them at the same time. And as part of applying for a banking charter and FDIC insurance, you have to literally do everything you need to do to open the bank before they tell you you can open a bank. So what I mean by that is you have to negotiate every contract, your core processing systems, your computers, your you have to order your equipment, the vault, the ATM machine. You have to write up job descriptions for all the employees that you might hire down, down the road if they let you open. Um, and you have to raise the capital. So we had to raise $10 million in capital. Glenn and I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner meetings every day for months and months and months. Would you give us some money? We want to open a bank. It's a really interesting conversation. People have to take a leap of faith. And uh, you know, a lot of it was former business contacts that we had and things like that. But you're doing all three of those concurrently. And one of the most interesting things, I think, is when we were negotiating all these contracts and we had lawyers and accountants and consultants, and we said to them all, can we pay you once we open? Because we only had a small amount of seed money uh, to get started. But the big capital raise, they don't let you touch that money until the day you open. And then the day you open, and this is going to totally date myself, we're standing staring at a fax machine in 2005, the morning that they said we could open. But until you get this fax that says you have FDIC insurance, you know, it's it's all kind of fiction until that comes through. So sure enough, right before 9 o'clock on May 2nd, 2005, the fax comes through that says, bingo. So then you can get the, it's like you have to meet in a, in a tunnel where you get your charter, your FDIC insurance, and you get the capital all at the same time on that same morning, and then everything opens. It's a crazy experience. And you said it's $10 million? That's what we did, raised to open. Is that a number you guys selected, or is that something that's like... So the minimum for the state at the time was $6 million, um, but because of our growth plans, we, we knew we would need a little bit more than that, so we went for ten. You see some banks open with $30 million. Uh, you'll see some banks that have opened historically. Maybe they opened, and they opened five branches right away. We knew we were going to be a branch light uh, type of operation, so $10 million. So what is that money used for? You know, you have to have this much to open it. Mm -hmm. Why do you have to have that much, and what do you need it for? So banks need to maintain a, a certain level of capital to support their assets, roughly 10 to 1. So a $10 million in capital would support growth to $100 million worth of loans, and uh, you would report capital ratios going forward quarterly to those regulators. Okay, so it's assuming how many people you think you're going to have coming in. You kind of want to just plan for that much. It's really based on assets. So how many, and our assets are loans. So it's kind of like the opposite of the way you think as a business owner. Loans are liabilities for you. They're assets for me. Okay. Yeah, can you describe for somebody who doesn't understand What's the, the system of the bank? How do you guys make money? Mm -hmm. What's the business model? I say all the time, you know, we're not saving lives here. I buy and sell money all day. That's what I do. I buy money in the form of deposits, right? I pay, pay you for interest, for giving me your money. And then I take your money as a depositor and I lend it out and I earn interest on that. So what I live on is the difference between the interest income I earn on my loans and the interest expense I pay on my deposits. That's the vast majority of my income. Really, it's buying and selling money. It's really no, no more complicated than that. 
so it's not on overdraft fees and things like that. No, it's such a nominal. It gets so much press. It's such a nominal thing for us. But really, at the end of the day, our overdraft fees get a lot of bad press right now. But at the end of the day, if you overdraw your account, I have someone who sits right outside the store who has to call every single person. We give you the right to cure that overdraft by 11 a.m., you know, versus avoiding the embarrassment of having everything returned right away. There's a value there in that service. We have a lot of customers who are frequent flyers who appreciate the phone call. Oh, I made a mistake. Let me transfer the money. Let me make a deposit, things like that. So during that um, planning phase of getting ready to raise capital and all that, did you guys have any mentors you were working with or were you literally just learning it as you went? Um, we had a legal counsel that had done this before, and um, they were very, very helpful. And they had told us when we started. So we left right after Labor Day. It was September 7th was our first day here. And we had said, we're going to get this charter application in by Halloween. And they said, no way. You're not going to be able to do it. Nobody's ever done it that fast. Again, challenge accepted. We filed on October 27th um, because we, we, just, we, we were very driven, and we knew how much money it cost us per day every day before we opened. Because Glenn and I were drawing a salary from day one. So it was just the two of us. We were working in a borrowed basement, and we knew that our salary was X dollars per day and that we needed to get open as quickly as possible so that we could get our capital and we could start growing the bank by earning earning um, income on our loans. So we were very focused on every day getting something tangible done. And why were you guys so confident in the idea of starting a bank? If it didn't sound like you had someone you were modeling or kind of following their footsteps, what was the drive to say, we can do this for sure, let's go? It's a really good question. Uh, again, blind stupidity, just just boldness. Uh, we just saw we just saw a real lack of, I mean, community banking model is such a special thing. It really is. When you see all of these, what I call big, faceless, evil banks, right? If you have a problem, like we see so much fraud right now in, cust- in customers' accounts. It's, it's unbelievable, the rampant fraud, the way money is moving so much faster than ever. And the bad guys are getting smarter and smarter. And technology is really separating the customer from the banker. If you have a problem with your account and you see a lot of fraud, I don't know that I'd want to walk into a Wells Fargo branch and try to get some help. We're here. All the executives are involved in your, in your case. We know what's going on. We're fighting tooth and nail to get you your money back in a way that it's like personal to us. Like you're our customer, like we're fighting for you. And I'm not saying that other banks aren't. And I, you know, Wells Fargo is easy to throw under the bus, but you know, insert bank name here. Um, There just is such a need for a community facing, community focused type of relationship where you know your banker. Also, the way that we give back is hyper local. So what I mean by that is, we don't donate to the American Red Cross. It's a, it's a highly reputable organization, but what I can give to them is like a gnat on a flea. I mean, it's, it's, it's so minuscule to their overall, but we're giving to local organizations here, the Garage in Kennett Square, the Westchester Area Education Foundation. It's all hyper-local. So the fact that we have the, the boots on the ground, we're on the boards, we're seeing where the needs are in the community, um, that's part of what community banks is all, banking is all about. So that's a long-winded answer to, we just saw a need for a good old-fashioned community bank. Yeah, can you describe a little bit more about what some of those major differences are between the community banks and the large banks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, on the lending side, uh, the bigger banks tend to focus on bigger deals. We do a lot of small business lending here, uh, and a lot of it is real estate focused. So maybe you're um, an entrepreneur, you're renting the building that you're in, you want to buy the building that you're in and stop paying rent. Like that's a sweet spot for us where we can help you customize a deal versus selling product A, B, C, D, off the shelf kind of products. We can customize 
pretty much anything on the lending side, which is really unique. Um, we might not always be the cheapest deal in town, but we're going to always be at the settlement table. Um, we have some stories. I have one long, long, long time customer who was buying a house and he used a mortgage broker and and that's fine. We, we don't specialize in mortgages by any means. Um, but he had his entire house in a truck, all of his belongings in a truck in front of the new house. And the broker didn't show up for the closing. And he called us at two o'clock in the afternoon. His wife's in tears with their entire, everything they own is in this truck in front of the new house. We got him closed by the end of the day. Now, it was a temporary thing, but like that's the kind of thing that's, that's different at a community bank level when you can call up the president and the CEO and, and really when you're in a bind or, or not. I mean, we prefer not to do the fire drills. We have to close a loan in three hours, but we will where, where we need to. And then on the deposit side, um, we don't really charge for anything. If you overdraw your account, that, that's a different story. But um, pretty much everything we have is free, even from a business standpoint, when it comes to cash management services, remote deposit capture, ACH transactions, we want to use your money to lend out. So we don't charge you. So it kind of has helped us keep our branch count low as we keep our costs low. And then we pass it on to the customer. Okay. Yeah. So you guys, you raised your funding and you guys opened what was the next step as far as the kind of brand development went? Did you guys have like a vision for the brand that was going to be your community bank? How did you guys go about developing that? Yeah, in the early days, it was uh, very unsophisticated. We often joked, let's take our marketing budget and divide it by the cost of a shirt and let's buy that many shirts and we'll have walking billboards all over Chester County. Literally, that was the approach to start out. We didn't have money for TV commercials, for radio is too broad a scope for us. Um, We did some print ads, but we also put a lot of money into community events. Again, going to the events because we know where the people are. We know where the needs are. So um, again, we spend a lot of time hand-to-hand combat is what we call it. So going to the right events, the chambers and uh, the foundation events, we found that to be highly effective. Uh, we have a lot of word of mouth referrals in the early years and we still do. Okay. Is that something you and Glenn came up with, like the whole the, the name First Resource Bank and the colors and everything? Yeah. So the name is really intended to be, we want to be the first resource for whatever you need. We may not ultimately be the person who provides that service, but we've got partners in other areas, like I mentioned, mor- mortgage isn't a focus of ours right now, but we have some trusted mortgage brokers that we would refer to. Um, we try to just be a trusted consultant. A lot of our small businesses don't have a CFO on staff, um, where my staff here can help help make some business decisions, can help them be bankable, more bankable in the future. Maybe we can't do a loan for you now, but if you do X, Y, Z, that next time you come to us for a loan, you're going to be able to do that. So I just had a question. I find it interesting that from day one, you were doing things like paying yourself paychecks and you had a marketing budget right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of those most important pillars that you had in place from a marketing, I mean, uh, accounting perspective that you would recommend that other business owners put in place if they're starting a business? Mm -hmm. Uh, I I am known to be a little tight on the expense side. And as much as we were pulling a salary from day one, that was that was a, a the, the organizing directors had put up enough seed money for us to take the risk to quit our jobs to go do this um, and draw a salary from day one. Incidentally, we knew exactly how many days we had, and we opened, I think we got to two weeks before our opening date, before we ran out of those funds. So it was really meticulously managed. I still sign every check over $2,500 that leaves this bank. Uh, it's just, it's 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 having, it's being smart about it. It's It's Part of it, I think, is having your employees think like owners. And that's something that we are really, um, we really try to be intentional about because 
the example I use, so Glenn and I interview every single person who wants to work at First Resource. So we opened with 11 employees in 05, and we're 63 today. And every single employee has been interviewed by the two of us. And one of the things I talk about in every single interview is we want people to think like owners. And what I mean by that is, if you're working in the branch and there's a coffee cup that fell out of somebody's car and is in the parking lot, if you're going to step over it to go into the branch, this isn't the place to work for you. And that's okay. Like, we're a little cuckoo. It's, it's okay. We're, we're really take it personal. Um, if, if, if that's not for you, that's fine. Um, but also the way you think about how you're spending money. I, I literally had my Wayne branch manager. He sent me an IM the other day about six months ago. Things were so crazy with supply chain and all that stuff. And he said, I went to go buy a can of air. And you know what I'm talking about? The thing you spray, you clean out your keyboard. He said it was $36. I didn't buy it. And I said, well, thank you for not buying it. Right. But how many other companies, somebody's just saying, well, it's a can of air. I need it. They don't care how much it is. Right. It's a silly example. But just that mentality of I'm not going to buy a $36 can of air, I think is um, it's prevalent throughout the organization. And we're not cheap. I mean, we're going to spend money where it makes sense to spend money. I'm always into investing in technology to work smarter, not harder is another thing all the employees here are tired of hearing me saying, but we're not going to buy $36 cans of air. So I think expense control, I think, is a real key, especially starting out. And in that planning phase, did you and Glenn already have your role, him being CEO and you CFO, that was outlined from the beginning? You guys yes. divided up those responsibilities? How did you guys tackle the other stuff that wasn't on your two specialties? Mm-hmm. Like, how did you divide that up and plan to fill those positions? I know you said you had 11 employees on day one or whatever. How did you guys right. go from the map to the physical mm-hmm. expansion of those ideas? Yeah, we didn't get it all right. But it, it's it's another thing, like when you're saying to people, would you please give us some money? We're going to open a bank. It's another thing to say to someone, could you quit your job and come here and help us get ready to open a bank because we think we're going to open a bank. It's another funny story about how one day there were six of us working around a conference table, just like what we're sitting at now. And um, I got a call from the FDIC and it went really well. And these calls, you never know. They're, it's the government. You just, you never know how those calls are going to go. And I hung up the phone and I said, this bank might actually open. And all of a sudden, all the people at the table picked up their heads and they were like, all looking around like, did, did, did you hear what she, like, there was no guarantee that we were going to open, right? Nobody really asked. We said, hey, we're going to open a bank. Do you want to come be a part of it? And we had five or so people quit their jobs before we opened to come work for us, like in the early days. And uh, well, sure enough, we did open, so spoiler alert. But um, it was challenging to find that talent before we were open. Once we got open, we um, had much more success with doing that. But like everybody else, finding good people is key to the success of the business. And it's really, really hard. And we don't get it right every time, even though we interview every single person, Glenn and I, you know, directly. It, it's really been challenging. And another thing that we never wanted to say, well, we're just a new bank, we didn't know. So we have a lot of seasoned bankers here. Like even though the bank's only, well now we're 18 years old, but I've got people with 40 years of bank experience. So hiring those seasoned people that can wear multiple hats, that can roll up their sleeves and not get into, that's not my job. That was really key to our success in those early days. A lot of us, a lot of us had five, six, seven titles at the time. Yeah, you guys have a very distinct customer service and kind of culture within the bank when you go physically visit it. Did you guys design that ahead of time? And how did you guys actually go from, you know, the idea again to implementing that kind of culture and across three different branches now? It's critical to everything we do. I say culture is everything. It's a slide we do at the annual meeting. It's something we talk about with our employees all the time. Um, we we truly feel that when you put the employees first, the customer service follows. And again, employees thinking like owners, and um, we're 
a best place to work from the Philadelphia Business Journal. We just found out for the fifth year in a row. There have been years we've been number one in the entire Philadelphia area. There's been, um, you know, just making the list is a huge accomplishment. And we're the only bank. So I think it's one thing to be one of the best community banks to work for. It's another thing to just be the best company to work for, because we're not all bankers here. One of the things that we've had success with is hiring um, people from uh, restaurants and servers. We have an assistant golf pro um, that we've turned into. I can train anybody to be a banker. I can't train you to be a decent human being. I've been saying that since day one, and we really find it to, to hold true. The banking skills, they're, they're, they're teachable. Um, but the, the culture is everything. And when people feel seen and heard, they will take that extra step for the customer and for the company uh, to really do do more. And it's really paid dividends down the road. So I'm fiercely protective of the culture. I, I am I am I'm a little a little bit over the top when it comes to very protective of what we're doing. And again, that goes to interviewing everybody who comes in. So you said when people feel seen and heard, how do you practically put that into practice in a day-to-day office job? Yep. I mean, I'll give you an example. We have somebody who was out with a medical issue for two weeks and five, six, seven people jumped in and said, what do you need me to do? What, how can I help? Because there were two people in particular that were bearing the brunt of this extra work that they had to do. And um, first of all, I just love that, that so many people raise their hands and say, what can I do to help? But there was one person in particular who's very quiet and kind of just sits head down in his cube. And I noticed that I'm, I'm usually, the, I'm not the first one in the morning, but I'm always the last one to leave. It's just, I'm a night owl. Just how I've always been, but I noticed he was one of the last ones here every night for a couple of days, and I just pulled him into my office one morning, and you know when the president taps you on the shoulder and says, "Hey, can you come to my office for a minute?" I, I, you know, not everybody reacts positively to that to that tap, but uh, I brought him down and he came down with a notebook ready to take notes. And I said, "I just want you to know, I see you. Like I literally said that. I see what you're doing. I appreciate you. Do you need anything?" And he was just like, "Oh, thank thank you for saying it, it's honestly." It's not hard. It's not rocket science. But the fact that I, I, I think that I said to him, like, I see you. I appreciate what you're doing. You don't you don't need to spend millions of dollars on, you know, frivolous things and Hawaiian shirt day and all this dumb stuff. It's, it's, it's actually genuinely giving a crap about the people that are doing this for you day in and day out. Um, it was a good moment for him. It was a good moment for me, too. Yeah, and what, what has your guys' structure been for training and keeping that consistency? How do you guys maintain that across so many different branches? Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's not the so many branches. That's the challenge. It's the constantly changing regulation. That's the challenge. Um, the rules seem to change, you know, with every new congressional session and who the regulator of the moment is and things like that. So um, we have to, we, we spend a ton of time reading and catching up and webinars and trying to stay on top because we really have to comply with the same rules that all the big boys do. And it's crazy. We have 63 employees and we have to follow the same rules as a Bank of America for the most part. So um, we try to seek out training opportunities. We try to keep sharing the knowledge and paying it forward. We do some formal programs. There's a really great graduate banking school that's at UPenn that we have our, I was the first candidate that went through. We now are our third one that just started this year. So we're, we're really interested in investing in our people. Um, to, to, to keep up to date and really help them hit their career goals. So I know it's somewhat limited. You guys can't get ultra innovative in the sense of what services you offer. It's pretty standard types of lending and stuff like that. Have you guys changed from your original offering to where you're at now in the services you offer to the community? That's a good question. Um, not 
Not much. We've kind of stayed true to our core principles. However, the technology has advanced. So we opened and we had online banking. So we're not that old that that was a new thing. But we have real-time ACH is coming up. We have um, the mobile app. We have, you know, taking, taking a picture of your check. That's a game changer. So I'm really glad that we didn't open with 10 branches because you just don't need them. I am a branch light person. That's, that's, I feel very firmly that sticks and bricks is not where it is. You need some. But I am, I'm a technology person. I, I often joke that I can start my car from my watch. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I love. My house is all rigged up with Alexas. I've got Jeff Bezos you know, hearing everything that happens in my house at all times. <laughs> but um, we are uh, very much a technology forward company. We're not recreating the wheel. It doesn't make any sense for us to try to. But we're going to adopt proven technologies as soon as we can to keep our FTE count down, helps with overhead, and makes us work smarter, not harder. So the fact that you have fewer branches, does that actually like pass the savings along to the yes, customer? Yes, 100%, by design. That's really cool. Yeah, how does that work with scaling out branches? Like, is it just every branch will give us this many more potential people to come in, give us that much more lending power? Mm-hmm. Like, is that? Our, our internal goal has always been to get $100 million in deposits per location. That, that's kind of our, our litmus test. We build branches to get deposits, not loans. The loans are generally all done out of our corporate office. We don't do lending through the branches for the most part. So what deposits are, again, if you go through that analogy of buying and selling money, it's like gas in the tank. So deposits coming in are the fuel for me to go do loans. I've got loan demand. I'm consistently raising deposits today for a loan I did yesterday. The loan demand has led the bank's growth and continues to. So what is the the structural difference between the branches and the corporate office? Um, They're just extensions of the corporate office. Of course, they have cash there. We don't have cash at our corporate office. Um, But fundamentally, there's not a whole lot different other than they're basically deposit takers. And we are putting the money out up here in corporate. Do you guys have plans to make more branches in the future? At some point. But uh, for now, we're going to keep doing technology investments. We did a whole core system conversion in 21. We did an online banking overhaul in 22. We're just trying to invest some money there to get some more efficiencies first. Do you guys have any kind of a limit on how big you plan to grow before it's... so, So you could potentially keep expanding... Is there a point when a community bank becomes just another big bank, or well, that's what's the, the thing. That's the thing. How do there? There's a point that we 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 always say if we do X, we just became every other bank. So one example is you you probably see banks do new money only specials, and what that means is if you bring in new money, only new money, your money that you have here, we we you know put that aside. You can't get this deal for that. But if you bring new money, you can get X rate on Y product. It's a very every finance textbook will tell you. That's what you should do, because if you offer it to everyone, then you're just going to have all of your existing money move into that special, and it's going to cost you more money. Customers hate it. Mm. I, I mean, I'm an accountant. I understand why you do new money only. It was one of those fundamental operating rules. We're never, ever, ever going to do that, the new money only special. So that's one of those things. We just did that. We just became every other bank. I can't tell you how many customers we've had come to us to say, well, my bank didn't, didn't want my existing money. They only wanted my new money. So I pulled the cashier's check. I pulled it all over here. It's a successful strategy for us. What other kind of principles do you have that that keep you in those lanes? Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I should I should pull out that rule book again. I mean, it, a lot of things about being very employee centric, customer centric. Um, the don't be afraid to raise small amounts of capital. So we talked earlier. We roughly need a ten to one capital ratio. 
Um, it can be scary to say we need $20 million IPO. Well, maybe the market's not there. Maybe if we just did $2 million, that gets us through the next year or two, and then the market will be better for X. So we haven't been afraid to fuel our growth in small pieces versus just waiting for those big, huge events, because sometimes the big, huge events don't happen, but doesn't mean you still don't want to keep growing. So one thing that's interesting about when we work with you on the marketing side is we're able to do TV commercials, as well as all other types of marketing incentives. Um, how do you determine what your marketing budget is? Hmm. That's a good question. It's kind of what's left. <laughs> poor, my poor marketing director, Katie, she, she's very patient. And we really learned how to do more with less when we consider who we're up against. Um, but we've really spent um, a fair amount on those TV commercials that are very focused. I mean, the fact that you can do Chester County only, and we do some along the main line with our with our Wayne branch. I mean, there was a moment during the Phillies in the NLCS that uh, the commercial comes on TV, and my 16-year-old son looks at me on TV on the commercial and thinks that I'm the coolest thing in the world. I mean, that's a moment you don't forget for sure. But um, we found uh, that the uh, Chester County only TV advertising has been incredibly cost effective. We're using um, Google uh, Google display ads. We're doing the stalker ads. I forget what the technical term for those remarketing. Are. Yes, yeah. the remarketing ads and all of those things. So, but really, in determining the budget for the year, we know our commitments to the community. Certain chambers were certain level sponsors. We're never. We're never, I shouldn't never say never, we're never going to back off of those commitments. We know what our community investments are. Those come first. The TV commercials, things like that, that's kind of like the filler on the back end. So if we have to pull back, that's the first place where we'll pull back. We're not going to cut back on the community sport. And yeah, in your marketing stuff, how do you guys separate yourself from other community banks in the area who are also offering the same type of thing? A lot of federal credit unions kind of go into that same angle of marketing. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that we like to tout, we're the best bank in Chester County. We're now six years in a row for that. And we're the best bank on the main line for the last three years. So that's that's also new information. So um, some SEO on best bank in Chester County. It's always, it's always what I'm saying to my marketing director. Like, how do we market the heck out of the fact that we are the best bank in Chester County and the best bank on the main line? Somebody's searching for those things. We better be the first name that pops up there. Um, and it doesn't cost you a lot of money to do that. It's a really cost-effective. Listen, again, customer service gets you the award, and then that saves you on the marketing dollars. So we really feel from a customer service standpoint that we're just, we're just we've built a better mousetrap. I know we have. It's just, you know, we need help getting the word out on that. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit more about the customer service side, because you talked about internally what you do to keep that culture up. Um, what do you do on the customer facing side that really has set you apart as that best bank? Mm -hmm. Well, I think everything we're doing here uh, with the employees is just carrying forward to the customers. Again, if you have, if you have an issue, uh, we're all over it. And it's terrifying. If someone gets into your account and takes your money, I don't think there's a more personal financial thing that it's just it's terrifying. Um, I can also tell a story about um, I have I had a customer coming in who had recently lost two dogs, like within like a week of each other. And the person who was at the teller counter had talked to this person day in, day out and knew this, went on Etsy, ordered this woman a necklace with like her dog's names on them and like gave this, to, like that's how you create raving fans for life. I mean, customers for life. And when I heard of this story, I was like, that better be on your expense report, right? That is amazing. That's the kind of stuff we need to do day in and day out. Everything from knowing you like blue lollipops and I've got a little stash in my drawer here of the blue lollipops so that when you come in, I'm gonna have one for you every time. Those are the experiences that stick with people. And, and really they're encouraged to do it. We share a lot of stories. 
like, hey, today, so-and-so did this for the customer. And it really kind of inspires that that kindness, that genuine caring for the customer. And I think everybody wants to get the next shout out. We do a lot of Google reviews and uh, the staff asking for them, it's been highly, highly effective. And every time we get a Google review, which are like 99% of them are five star, I, I do an email every Monday morning and every Monday as uh, on top of here's, here's what's going on this week and here's whose birthday it is and all that kind of stuff. It's boom, here's, the, here's a great Google review. And when you get named in that Google review, that, that puts some pep in your step from that day. I want to talk a little bit about um, your specific role as CFO, but real quick, how did you and Glenn decide who between who would be CFO and CEO? Glenn had a bit more experience than me. That means he was a little bit older than me. Um, he, uh, he It was his idea, really. I, I was his first choice for CFO, and um, it was really not even a discussion. He, he, he was the president and CEO for the first... 16 years and then 16 years in I became president and CFO. It's kind of been a succession plan that's been in the works since day one. So in your role as CFO, like what is your approach to the CFO role? I know there's a lot of people who manage that position differently. How do you use that position within the company? Um, I think it's important to not be a bean counter and just be looking backwards. Uh, accountants tend to have that reputation for telling the story of what happened versus being strategic and looking forward. And I think that's the big difference in being able to make the jump from accountant to CFO to president to CEO, is being able to look forward and strategize and help make the long-term decisions versus just reporting. Um, so, Good. Yeah. So you take the more strategic approach. Mm -hmm. What are some of those numbers that you really like to keep a close eye on that help influence your choices? Boy, you're going to be sorry you asked that question. I'm going to really nerd out here. But one of the main uh, measures that we use is what's called our net interest margin. And that's basically a measure of the difference between what we're paying on our deposits and what we're earning on our loans. And that's kind of the lifeblood of our income stream. So I'm always watching that, especially with what's, which, with what's happening with interest rates right now. The Federal Reserve has increased over 500 basis points in the fastest time uh, the shortest time frame um, ever. So it's been a very interesting time to manage interest rate risk. We're also hyper-focused on our return on equity, which shows what our shareholder returns are. We actually just were named to the top 200 performing community banks under $2 billion in assets by the American banker, because, and that's a measure of return on equity. So that's very important to us, and we're achieving good results there. So that's really a measure of your cash flow in layman's terms? So it's basically our net income to the equity that um, we have on our balance sheet. So it's basically saying uh, the return that the shareholders are earning, even though we're not paying a dividend, it, it, it's a reflection of the income that we're making on the equity that they've given us, basically, invested in us. So how has your strategy shifted from opening to today as you've, obviously things don't always go exactly how you had it on paper. How have you like directed that strategy from your position as CFO? It's funny, we opened in 05. Right, so what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, I don't know, the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression hit us smack in the face in 08. And we made money six full quarters in, we were profitable, it was great. And then it was like a two by four to the head. We had so many problem loans. I've got stories about bad loans and bad collateral that will take hours that I won't bore you with. But boy, that was really rough. And how do you pivot through that? We got into the government's programs back then, TARP and SBLF and all of those things. We got, got in them, got out of them. Uh, it's funny. You, you make me think of something. When when I was 30, when we opened the bank, Glenn's, I was like, I'm too young. This is like a risk factor. Like your CFO's 30 years old. I don't know anything. And he said, I know many people that have 30 years of bank experience, and it's the same year 30 years in a row. You're going to be fine. 
Well, the 18 years that I've had here, what I've lived through. So let's start with opening a bank, one of the most stressful experience. Literally, there was one point where I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, I didn't. But um, then to get into the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression, get through that. Uh, I got appointed president on December 20th of 2019. Okay, well, we all know what happened three months later, right? So let's get through COVID, PPP, what we did with that. That's a whole nother hour in and of itself. I don't know what the next thing is, locusts or whatever, but like we're, we're ready for it. Like we, we, can, we can pivot, we're nimble. That's one of the things that makes us great about a small bank. What do you need? Like we don't have to go through 20 layers of bureaucracy to create a product. I've had Glenn sell a product that didn't exist. He came back and was like, hey, this is great. I'm going to get all these deposits. And we said, that, that doesn't exist. But at the end of the week, we built the product. It was ready. So um, it, it's, it's really cool. It's one of those things that I want to make sure that as we continue to grow, we don't lose. It's, it's one of my 3 AMs is how do I keep the culture going and how do I not lose the secret sauce of what we've got going on right now? Yes, I think we've, co we've covered a lot of stuff. Um, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is looking to either fix a community bank that's not doing so well or looking or someone who's interested in starting their own like mm. you guys did you're, you're okay so you're, if you're looking to start your own boy that's it's 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 a great undertaking surround yourself with good counsel uh, good counsel good consultants talk to someone who's done it that's not going to sugarcoat it i'm available i'd love to share my story to a, a banker that's thinking about doing it on their own uh, like I said, it's like a secret club that once you've done it, you you kind of like to share the war stories. So uh, I'll offer myself out for that. And, you know, there's a lot of banks that are struggling right now with what's happening with interest rates. Who knows what's going to happen with credit? I mean, at the end of the day, it's about rolling up your sleeves and really getting to know the customer base, what you have in your books uh, from a loan standpoint. And, um, you know, you have to get granular with it and, and you just you can't ivory tower any of this I don't care how big you are you really have to get into the the nuts and bolts of of what's on your balance sheet what people do you have what where do you need to augment talent uh, where, where know your strengths and weaknesses like I'm I'm a CPA I don't do taxes I don't do my own taxes I know that when it comes to anything tax I'm bringing in experts like knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know I think is really important um, so that's my two cents Okay, and does First Resource have any immediate plans for the future or long-term goals you guys are looking to hit? Yeah, I mean, we're looking to continue to grow this. And, and while it may not, it, growth used to be measured in physical branches, I think now it's just measured in assets and in profitability. So uh, we just hit a milestone of, of $500 million in assets. We're approaching $500 million in loans. Like, these are really meaningful things to the local economy even. We've done over a billion dollars of loans, hyper-local, right here, Chesco, Delco, Monco. Uh, we do a little bit in Philadelphia, but um, it, it really uh, makes a big impact. And, and donation-wise, we've donated over $2 million hyper-local. We're big proponents of the EITC program, that Education Improvement Tax Credit Program. It's allowed us to really amplify our giving through tax credits. That's another program. I'd be happy to sit down with anyone who wants to learn more because I hate sending money to Harrisburg and letting them decide where the money goes. You can keep it all right here in Chester County. Um, it's, it's really a great program. So um, we, we want to keep growing. We want to stay relevant. And we, we want to uh, keep expanding our customer base. Okay. And if anybody wants to learn more about you or First Resource, how, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you guys? So our website is firstresourcebank.com. First is spelled out. And uh, or give us a call. 610-363-9400 uh, is our main number. Or stop by one of our branches. Okay. I think that covers it. Lauren, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, guys. 
Stories from the Top is your guide to successful business development. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find Edge of Cinema on YouTube. Stories from the Top is an Edge of Cinema production hosted by Matthew Skura and Jeremy Schmidt. To learn more or get in touch, visit edgeofcinema.com slash podcast.